love you. We thank you, and we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Jeff. Hey, you weren't too weird either. <laughs> Jeff and I, I think we had one, one kid when we met, so we actually got to talk. Um, so thanks for the kind welcome. It's nice to be introduced and actually, like, welcomed, you know, walking into the office every day. That's not the case, so thank you for that. If you would uh, stand with me, we're going to read Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read uh, verses 1 through 32, so it's a little bit longer, but you guys, I believe in you. You can stand, and you can, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn there with me. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in front of you in the chairs, uh, and it's, if you turn to Matthew 5 in those Bibles, it's on page 809, 809. So our text this morning is specifically verses 21 through 32, but we want to read the whole thing. So hear this, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall, see, they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You were the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of, the, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard that it was said of, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your, offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, 
and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than the whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. You can have a seat. Let's pray. Lord, your words are true. They are without fault. And as this morning we look at your words that have been written down for our benefit, would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us ears to hear? That these words wouldn't fall on rocks, but that they would fall on fertile soil that you would prepare our hearts to hear and that you would change us. Lord, only you can do this work. This is a miracle. Would you do it this morning? We give you the praise and glory and honor forever and ever for it's yours. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. How would you feel if before you farted... uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Let me start over. How would, you feel, how would you feel if on the first day of school, same, it still applies. How would you feel if on the first day of school, your parents said to you, perfection, you must be perfect. Different from farting. How would you feel if when you got your driver's license, your parents give you the keys and they say, one rule, perfection, you must be perfect. Or your marriage, on your marriage vows, say, I will love you till death do you part in perfection. You must be perfect. Or the birth of your first child, the nurse hands you your baby and says, perfection, you must be perfect. Or grandchild, for you grandparents, how would you feel? At age 12, having grown up in the church, I can remember coming across Matthew chapter 5, verse 48 for the first time. And it was probably the first time of many, undoubtedly, where I was uh, theologically pinned. I was, I was truly stuck. And for those of you who are turning to Matthew 5, 48, Jesus says this, You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I remember reading this and asking, how can the Lord demand this of me when he knows my frame? He must surely know that I'm totally inadequate. 
Why would then he command his people with this command? Isn't that cruelty? To ask somebody to do something that, they, that you know they can't do. And as I worked through this and I got stuck, I just remember having no answers. And, I, and I, in desperation, I emailed my pastor for help. My pastor at the time. I mean, I remember playing video games for you teenagers. Playing video games where you have to execute the perfect mission in order to complete the level. And I couldn't even do it in video games. I've wasted hours upon hours trying to complete a perfect mission in video games. If I can't do that, how in the world can I do it in life? And I can't help but wonder what thoughts were going through the minds of those who were listening to the great sermon there on the mount when Jesus said these words in verse 24, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Imagine the next thoughts was, who? Who then, Lord, can enter the kingdom of heaven? And some of you are probably wondering the same thing. See, in our culture, if you were to ask others why they should go to heaven, and I heard it this week, I was talking to a masonry contractor. I'm a pretty good person. I'm not as bad as other people. I mean, I haven't killed anybody. Have you heard that before? We're all guilty. We all know that if we measure ourselves up to the perfection standard of Jesus, there is no way we can do it. And despair and panic begins to set in. We're all guilty and deep down inside, we know it. Perfection is what is demanded. And the God who demands it is the all-seeing and all-knowing God. The crowds knew it. The disciples knew it. We know it. And surely the, Lord's know, the Lord knows it. So the question this morning then becomes, so what are we to do? And as we walk through our text this morning, we're going to observe uh, what Jesus says and he, as he confronts his disciple, disciples with the stark reality. We're going to observe the first two of a series of sins in which Jesus levels the playing field among those in the crowd. He makes known the true heart of the law by using three examples, anger, lust, and divorce, to show us that there is none that are truly righteous. And as we go through our text, my hope is that you will see clearly that Jesus knows the heart. Jesus knows the heart. And, when I, and what I want you to leave with, I'm going to leave you with four applications on how to walk in the newness of life. So let's get to it. Example number one, murder. If you have your Bible still open, let's reread verses 21 through 26, of Matthew chapter 5. And you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and then remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother. 
and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. In these first few verses, Jesus makes known the heart of the law by the example of murder. It's commandment number seven of the famous Ten Commandments given to Moses. You shall not murder. Seems straightforward, right? Don't murder anybody and you'll be okay. What makes you guilty, Jesus explains, that not just the act of murder, but everything that goes on internally, long before the act is carried out, to be angry with someone, to be angry with someone means to hold strong feelings of irritation, resentment toward another, and even wishing them harm. If you felt this way in your heart, you stand condemned. And the consequences are severe. Jesus knows the heart. This is the issue. And in case you're wondering what the word brother means, it's used here metaphorically as one who's connected with another in a kind of intimacy or fellowship. This isn't your literal brother, although this includes your littler brother or brothers. That would almost be the easier definition, but rather this is anyone that you associate with, co-workers, friends, classmates, roommates. It also includes that of your own household, your parents, your spouse, even your children. What about those who differ from you on political issues, issues like abortion? It's a sanctity of human life Sunday. Gender equality, tax reform. What about the past relationships you've had? Jesus says everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Hurling insults at one another, calling someone a fool and ultimately murder are just the results of an underlying sin of anger. It starts with the heart, and Jesus knows the heart. Jesus offers some wisdom in verses 23 through 26. We should, uh, what we should practically do when there is an offense. And he offers two scenarios with one main, one main point, verse 23 through 24. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and then remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your, offer your gift. Scenario number two, verse 25 through 26, come to terms quickly with your accuser. While you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. Did you see the connections, what they have in common between those two examples? Number one, you're the offender. Number two, reconcile immediately. To delay conflict is to inflate conflict. If you're in the wrong, go, confess, be reconciled to your brother immediately. That's example number one. Example number two, adultery. In these next few verses, Jesus makes known the heart of the law by the example of adultery. 
similar to the first example, Jesus uses the same approach, only this time he uses two separate situations, lust, first of all, and divorce, second, in order to reinforce the same overarching issue of the sin of adultery. The sin of adultery is commandment number eight of the famous Ten Commandments. Exodus twenty fourteen simply says, you shall not commit adultery. Again, it seems straightforward, right? Jesus explains that not just the act of adultery is what makes you guilty. What makes you guilty is everything that goes on internally long before the act of adultery is ever carried out. And we're all guilty. Jesus knows the heart. Let's look at lust first. Matthew 5, 27 says, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The word looks here is a verb. And it's in the present tense, which indicates continuous or habitual action. The phrase lustful intent is one, one word in the original Greek. And it means to set your heart upon. To long for. To covet. Or to set your mind to desire earnestly. To look at a woman with lustful intent or to set your heart and or your mind upon another is to be guilty. This is the issue. Jesus knows the heart. Genesis 6, 5 through 6 says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great. Where? In the heart. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Jesus, being God himself, not only knows the heart, but he knows every intention of the thought of the heart. I'll say that again. Jesus, being God himself, not only knows the heart, but he knows every intention of the thoughts of the heart. This is the issue when we all stand guilty. And it grieves him. Knowing the reality of the sin of lust, which is adultery, Jesus then gives practical wisdom in the form of two positive negative statements. He offers us this wisdom in verse 28. 29 and 30, it says, If your right hand or if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one member, one of your members, than that your whole body go into hell. You guys might remember this, but in 2003, a man named Aaron Ralston, he was an outdoorsman. He's been hiking a, de a remote desert in Utah. There's been a movie about him, a book. But as he was hiking, he dislodged a boulder, and the boulder fell, and his hand was stuck between literally a rock and a hard place. The boulder pinned his, his arm against the wall of a rock. And he was stuck alone for more than 120 hours. 
And so alone, he, faced, he was faced with the grim reality of having one of two options. Option number one, die, whether by dehydration or the environmental causes. Or option number two, amputate his own arm and have a chance to live. In an interview, I'm going to quote him here. He recalls the account. And he says this, this smile came over me. I was euphoric as I went about the amputation, and I'll spare you the details. As I went about the amputation, but even as I got through the most intense pain, I knew that I was going to get out of here. I'm not going to die, or I'm going to die at some point, but I'm not going to die here. I'm going to get out of this place. And sure enough, after an hour and five minutes of working through the amputation, I, I was free. It was the most euphoric ecstasy that I'll probably ever feel in my life. Remember, these are the words of someone who just worked through his own amputation. He uses the word euphoric, which means feeling of intense excitement and happiness. The word ecstasy, which he uses as well, means an overwhelming feeling of great happiness or joyful excitement. Aaron's cutting off of what was dead was well worth gaining life. Jesus, knowing the reality of what is at stake, offers this, us this insight. Is not life worth the cutting off of what only brings death? If you looked at another with lustful intent in your heart, you were guilty, and the consequences are severe. Jesus knows the heart, and that's the issue. Lastly, for the second example of adultery, Jesus turns to the issue of divorce. Here we come to the last of the situations that we're going to look at this morning. Look at, with me at verses 31 through 32. It reads this. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever murders, or excuse me, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. While this is probably the shortest situation, it's perhaps the most painful is often the final result of anger and the final result of lustful intent that has ruined marriage. But the act of divorce is the same sin. Jesus levels the playing field. One is not worse than the other. Having witnessed the collapse of the marriages of my friends, co-workers, and seeing the pain that's left in among close family members leaves me convinced that it is truly devastating. And it's devastating for all involved. Divorce is defined as a putting away, a letting go, a departing. It's a separation of something that was bound together or that was whole. Divorce is adultery. It's a perversion of the Lord's original design for marriage. Genesis chapter 2, verse 23 to 25 says this, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. 
She shall be called a woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This was the Lord's original design for marriage, and this is what we all long for. Divorce is a tearing apart of flesh from flesh, bone from bone. This hits home for many in this room this morning, whether it's your own marriage or somebody you know. It's evident that this was not how it was meant to be. The sting of divorce leaves a scar in the deepest corners of the human heart. Not only is it painful to all involved, but it grieves the Lord as well. And Jesus says here that divorce is an offense against the Lord. Now, it's not my role this morning to convict you of sin. I've simply said what they are. And it's certainly not the role of the person sitting next to you. This role rests solely with the Holy Spirit. And I know and I trust that he has already brought conviction in your hearts this morning. Jesus knows the heart. This is the issue. And we're all guilty. We're all guilty. Macbeth is a famous play written by William Shakespeare. Macbeth, who's obviously the main character, he commits murder. And after he commits murder, he says this. As he looks at his hands, he says, What hands are here? How they pluck out mine eyes. Will all great Neptune's oceans wash this blood clean from my hand? No. This my hand will rather the multitudinous seas incarnadine, making the green one red. Multitudinous means vast. And incarnadine means to turn blood red. This is to say that a, a vast ocean could not wash these hands clean. But rather, these hands are capable of making the vast oceans blood red with my guilt. And when you stop to think about your own guilt this morning in light of these three examples, we have to ask ourselves, what can possibly clean these blood-stained hands? Whether you were walking in anger, walking in lust, whether you've been divorced, Jesus knows the heart. This is the issue and we're all guilty. So as I was on my knees as a 12-year-old boy asking myself what I should do in desperation, I mentioned earlier that I decided to email my pastor because I needed help. And when I wrote to him about my issues and my confusion with Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, he replied to the desperate email of a 12-year-old boy. And he said this. He said, Sean, that's why Jesus came. He knows you can't do it. That's why he did it for you. And now he offers his perfection for you. And then he reminded me of the verse that he and I worked through together in Awanas. 
Sorry. He had me write it back to him and tell him what I thought it meant. It was Isaiah 53, 6, which says this, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is good news. My imperfections and my shortcomings were exchanged for his perfections and his righteousness. And your imperfections and your shortcomings were exchanged for his perfections and his righteousness. And the wrath of God was satisfied by Jesus on your behalf. This is true for anyone who would believe and confess. The heavier the weight, the greater the relief. This was the only satisfying answer to me, and I hope it's the only satisfying answer to you. And I want to offer two more scriptures to you as we soak in the marvels of the gospel, and I'll get it together here. It's Romans 5, chapter 8. It says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Amen. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 through 11 says this, Or do you not know? that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of heaven. such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He purchased your justification. You've been declared innocent by the only one that can bring judgment. Where your sin went, grace went further still. What was filthy has been made clean. What was crooked and deformed has been made straight. And you've, those who have stood condemned have been declared legally righteous in the courts of the Most High. Only by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to him forever and ever. Amen. So what do we do? What do we do? Caitlin had come across a poem earlier this week. We process together a lot of times when I have the opportunity to preach. And she came across this poem by Cowper. I think I'm saying that right. But it says this in regard to Christian obedience. It says, To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and to hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child 
and duty into choice. We no longer need to pursue perfection as means of justification, but as means to a reward. It changes everything. First Peter 1, 16 through 19 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You have been ransomed. You've been bought back. And because you have been ransomed, you are to conduct yourselves in holiness. His blood demands a response. So, as I close this sermon this morning, I want to leave you with four applications to consider this week in order that you may now practically walk in newness of life. Application number one is this. Recognize. Confess your sin and mourn over it. Matthew 5, 3 through 4, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Recognize, mourn, confess your sins. Don't bury it anymore. Jesus knows the heart, but he can change the heart. To be poor in spirit is to cower like a beggar, to be helpless or poor. To mourn is to grieve, to lament, to be sorrowful. One that sees his own heart condition and mourns over it is the greatest sacrifice that the Lord desires, more so than, Scripture says, the blood of bulls. Jesus captures this well in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18, verse 13 through 14. He says, he puts it this way, but the tax collector standing far off would not even look would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. If you have been angry, see it for what it is and mourn. If you have been lusting, see it for what it is and mourn. If you have been divorced, see it for what it is and mourn. Put away your hard hearts. Cry out to the Lord for mercy. The Lord promises in return that the kingdom of heaven will be yours and you will be comforted. That's application number one. Number two is relinquish. Humbly release your control. Matthew 5, 5 says this, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. To be meek is to be mild or humble, to be gentle. Strength bridled by gentleness. Merriam-Webster says it this way, to be, enduring in, to be enduring injury with patience and without resentment. This is to be teachable, enduring, and trusting the Lord to be your defense and not taking matters into your own hands. 
Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We no longer need to tirelessly justify ourselves, for our justification has already been purchased. We can then be patient, trusting the Lord that whatever he brings is for his glory and for our good. And the Lord promises in return is that one day the meek will inherit the earth. This reward will be worth it. Application number three, repent. Turn and pursue holiness in all circumstances. Matthew 5, 6 through 10, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? How important is righteousness to you? While our circumstances and situations might not change, we are commanded to pursue holiness. You have been ransomed from the futile ways. We should be a people of regular confession, repentance, and recovery. Having now been justified, it's about direction, not perfection. So when you're angry with someone, go and do everything in your power to be reconciled with that person as soon as possible. That's about as practical as you get. Forgive them in your heart and before the Lord and go confess your own sins and ask for their forgiveness. Your coworker, your spouse, and especially your children. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This reward will be worth it. Now, in regards to lust, I can give you a thousand different things that would be helpful. Things that you've probably heard. Bounce your eyes. Website blockers. Accountability partners. Run away. Don't have meetings with one-on-one. These are all good things. I'm not minimizing those by any means. But what I've found that over the years to be true is that you will find a way around those. Your actions are slave to your desires. Your battles should not be focused on your actions, though they are important. But your focus needs to be on your desires. Your actions are slave to your desires. It's a question of what you desire more. Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is a promise of a reward that matters more to me than any fleeting and temporary feeling. To behold God himself for all eternity is infinitely better than anything you can offer me here and now temporarily. That's enough for me. Is it enough for you? Your actions are slave to your desires. Pray that the Lord would change your affections. Get in the word of God to know him better. 
to fall more desperately in love with him until he becomes the most precious thing to you, more so than anything else. This is how you conquer lust. A better joy. Now, if you're here in this room this morning and you've been divorced, my encouragement to you is to first and foremost confess your sins and ask for forgiveness from the Lord and then rest. Rest in grace. Rest. In that grace, forgive your former spouse in your heart. Then walk in the newness of life. Oftentimes, if not most times, it's not physically possible to reconcile with your former spouse, your ex-husband, your ex-wife, whether it's court orders, location, phone numbers, being lost, things of all kinds of reasonings. If we've seen anything from our text this morning, it's that Jesus cares more about the heart. You can't change what happened in the past, but you can be merciful. You can hunger and thirst for righteousness. You can be a peacemaker still. No more anger. No more bitterness. No more jealousy. No more gossip. No more revenge. You've been forgiven. So go and do likewise. Now to those of you who are in this room this morning and who are on the verge of divorce, or even in the process of divorce, my encouragement to you is this. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. He also says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. While there is still time, pursue peace and be merciful to one another. Mourn over your sin. Confess your sin and ask for the forgiveness from the Lord and from your spouse. Let the grace of the Lord wash over you and give you peace. And second of all, forgive your spouse. He who has been forgiven infinitely cannot justly withhold forgiveness. If you are in Christ, your sin has been infinitely worse than that of your spouse's sin against you. Then put your hands to the heavy plow together and rebuild what was broken. It'll probably take a long time, perhaps even decades. But may I remind you that this was the vow that you made to each other on your wedding day. And as a last note here, divorce is messy. My last encouragement is don't do it alone. If you're in an unsafe environment, if you're confused, lost, don't do it alone. Come talk to our pastors. Let them pray for you. Let them support you. Let them guide you through difficulty. Don't do it alone. So application number four, repeat and rejoice. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You will be hated for walking in this way. You will be. 
those who have those who you have been angry with will see you as weak and they'll probably throw it back in your face. Those who have joined you or have perhaps even enabled you to feed your lustful desires will no longer feel comfortable asking you to go to the clubs or the bars. You'll be an outcast. Your spouse or even your ex-spouse might throw it back in your face. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Your reward will be great and it will be worth it. It will be. Lastly, I want to close with a quote from Jim Elliott, a missionary. He, you're probably familiar with him, but uh, he was a missionary to the indigenous people and he ultimately lost his life trying to reach and make contact with them for the gospel. And he says this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Amen? Would you pray with me? Lord, we're grateful for your scriptures this morning. Thank you for the difficult scriptures, the ones that force us to think about our lives, the ones that address our hearts. I pray, Lord, that the gospel would be sweet to us this morning, that we do have nothing to bring to the table, but you brought yourself to the table for us. Would we rest in that and walk as obedient children, no longer condemned? Thank you for the good news. Thank you for loving us while we are still sinners. We give you all praise and honor in Jesus' name. We pray this. Amen. Now we're going to enter into a time of communion this morning.